0: our soundhouse weekly live chat series where music experts and creators come together to discuss industry topics friends challenges and tools for success i'm chris rodriguez i'm a music journalist and the dance music curator at soundhouse and i'll be moderating our first panel live music from a distance usually around this time we'd be in the of festival season On a day like today, that would mean getting ready for our next big adventure by planning out our raid look, making our own schedule from the set time, or making a playlist for the drive there. This year's a little different. Festivals and live events around the world have been put on pause because of COVID-19 pandemic with no clear end in sight. So venue doors are closed. That doesn't mean the music has to stop. We have some great speakers here today who are going to talk to us about how they're continuing to bring live music to the fans as they navigate the current landscape and their thoughts on the future of live music. So let's meet them. We have Nick Groff, who is the senior vice president of A&R Interscope Records. Nick is credited with discovering teenage sensation Zoe Eilish, and throughout his career, he has worked with artists like Avicii, Madonna, LMFAO and The Black Eyed Peas. Next, we have Joey Packers. Joey is an artist manager and the co-founder of SEAL, a full service managed, artist management company which represents artists, producers, and songwriters, including Lewis the Child, Two Sebastian Paul, and Win and Wu. Last, we have Blake Copleston, founder and CEO of the Pop Electronic Curation Outlet Proximity. Last month, Proximity partnered with events company Brownies and Lemonade to produce the online music festival Digital Mirage, which features performances from artists such as Eskate, Griffin, and Alice in Wonderland, and which raised money for the Sweet Relief Music Fund.
1: How are y'all doing today, guys?
2: Pretty good. We're good. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Thanks for having
0: us, Chris. Now, <laughs> awesome. Now, before we get into this chat, I just want to let our viewers know, if you have questions for our panelists and the topics we discussed today, just hit us up in the chat and we'll get to them near the end of the segment. All right. So, Blake, uh, when did you realize that festivals and live events wouldn't be happening this summer? And how and when did the wheels for Digital Mirage begin turning?
3: We started seeing it as soon as the artists that we work with slowly, slowly started canceling a show here and there. <clears throat> and rapidly, to the point where from the first cancelled show and then two weeks after they canceled their entire summer tours, um, so from Coachella and eDC and the bigger ones canceling because of you know the high attendees, then we we started seeing, you know the two thousand cap venues closing down to the thousand cap venues to the five hundred cap so um, we just noticed that you know this, there might be a change in this artist won't be able to tour for the rest of the summer, so we just kind of gauged interest and just you know saw what we could do there. And then the answer for us is and was an online music festival. So,
0: Joey, how did you get involved with Digital Mirage?
4: Sure. So, I was speaking with Blake and Kush, the founders of Digital Mirage, initially about booking a number of artists that we represent to play the festival. Um, I love the idea, I love the concept. It was one of the early, the earliest kind of first to market festivals in the space. And um, I approached them about getting involved as more on a level bigger than just being an artist manager of someone playing the fest. Um, so initially we came on as a sponsor and helped out with all the artists advancing, um, communication with teams, artist marketing, outreach, press coordination, et cetera. Um, First one went really well, and on the next one we're involved as producers of the event, and really looking to just amplify and build on everything we did on the first one, and and build continue to build the brand. So, uh, taking you know traditional marketing strategies from a
2: live event, a tour, a show, whatever, and applying them to this brand is is kind of the the direction we're going. I think your audio is cut off.
0: Nick, being that you work at a major label, how has how is your artists currently coping with the
1: situation?
5: Yeah, I mean I think as we saw COVID happening and the reality that live shows were gonna come to a halt, uh, the big idea was fighting for attention. You know, every artist wants to remain um, in the forefront of their audience's mind and So, you know, a few of the artists that I work with, like Youngblood and uh, Machine Gun Kelly, um, Ren for short, we actually had quite a few that acted really quickly. And, you know, internally, we just talked about like, what are the things that we can do that are going to be beyond the norm? And a lot of the artists um, kind of instantly went on, you know, Instagram Live and they were doing a lot of like acoustic pullback. And so, one of the ideas that our artists had was just, how can we flood with content above and beyond the release of songs and music videos? And so, you know, with Youngblood, young within, I think, 48 hours of, of, uh, the proposed lockdown, uh, we did an entire variety show similar to what you would have seen on the late night shows with friends and family, uh, kind of social distancing pulled back in the studio and, you know, with MGK, he started doing covers. And, so, I think a lot of our, my, the artists that I worked with on the majors side, Started to mobilize their audience in different ways because we realized promoting singles wasn't going to be traditional anymore. It wasn't going to be put out a song, drop a music video, do a press week in LA and New York, and then go on your tour and play it to the fans uh, that had been consuming that song over the course of the last couple of weeks or a couple of months. So it was just a quick pivot to, to grab attention and, and to not only uh, abide by the times and the change, but create it.
0: So for the rest of these questions, I'm just going to open them up to the panel. If you have something to say, feel free to jump in. Um, I'm curious to know how your job role has changed or evolved throughout
1: this pandemic. Um,
2: <clears throat>
3: I guess since Digital Mirage, oh sorry, Joey, um, since Digital Mirage, I guess is taking up almost you know a significant portion of the time. So like. From switching between, you know, a record label and a curation outlet to now programming a festival that's going to happen multiple times a year versus just annually, um, for me it's been, for me and our team over at Proximity, it's it's been this little shift of, you know, we have all this attention on online music festivals. How can we either keep doing digital mirage or do something off the wall like during this time? And then what does that look like? after the pandemic ends? Is it, are these online festivals still going to be as successful or as impactful? Are the artists going to want to do them now that they're touring three or four times a week? Um, so it's something that we're trying to establish, but also
2: just just keep our foot in the door.
1: Joey, so sure. you, you, did you have something to say as
4: well? Um, on my side as an artist manager, it's really just turned all, all the focus to content. Um, with the Lewis the Child guys they just announced their debut album coming out June 12th um, you know they were originally supposed to play Coachella this year had a big tour a big bus tour scheduled to support the the album and now we're just looking for unique ways to um, you know get their brand in front of an audience online and you know these online performances we're seeing sometimes you know fifty, hundred thousand 100,000 people show up to these streams so you know, the, it's um, it's really just looking at, at new new digital ways and and just a real focus on content and
2: online performances. Nick, in yeah. being
0: in an A and R, um, since there are no live venues to go to, has that kind of changed how you're discovering and and finding music and artists?
5: Yeah, I think the discovery method is is a bit chaotic. You know, there's there's data-driven A&R, there's gut-driven and I've found artists through, you know, Billy Eilish was um, one of my friends at Hilly Dilly sending the record over. And, you know, that was the discovery method. That, you know, with Youngblood, we saw him live. Um, other ones I found, you know, surfing through SoundCloud links. So I think that, um, I don't think on the A&R side, discovery has changed too much other than you can't go see an artist perform the songs that you probably discovered online uh, in a live setting, and you can't see that visceral reaction of the fan base. Um, But I think one of the things that's uniquely changed for me uh, is the creation process. You know, a lot of the artists uh, that I work with were in the middle of their album or finishing their album, and all of a sudden, we're in a lockdown, and nobody can go to a recording studio. Um, And so... You know we've been pivoting on ways to build home studios get equipment um as the lockdown starts to lift we'll find new ways to do a a skeleton crew for recording but i think you know honestly i think everything changed i think it's it's this pressure of of no touring has caused artists to promote themselves in different ways i mean you know one of the artists that uh, i don't represent in any way but i'm a big fan of you know watching james blake go from kind of an artist that doesn't really showcase his brand, uh, at least digitally, to being forced to, to connect with his audience in a new way. And then all of a sudden he starts to go on Instagram live and he starts to do these live versions of his songs. Not only did I fall in love with him even more as a fan during that time, but I started to see a bit of, of who he was as a person in the in-between of him performing the songs. So I think that live music has changed, like the traditional route of live music was you went and you saw a band or a DJ or whoever it was on a stage. Now you're seeing them on a multitude of different stages from acoustic live, to band live, uh, to DJ sets like the Digital Rock Festival where people are being really creative with how they produce their own setting. Um, so I think that, you know, a lot of stuff has changed. We're still learning and we're still trying new things, but it's, um, I almost think it's really exciting because you're watching new artists set the way for other artists to kind of follow.
0: And and to your your observation about James Blake doing something new, and how the creative process for artists and their teams is, is changing as we kind of pivot into this era, I'm curious to know what other innovative or creative ideas you've seen or adopted that are, are taking something like
1: live
2: streaming music and performances
5: to the next level. Yeah, I think, you know, another artist that I worked with, uh, MGK, um, you know, we were finishing up his record, getting ready to launch his first single, which we have now. And um, right before the lockdown happened, we were kind of talking about what we could do to prime the audience for the music to come. And one of the things that he had, that he had done with Travis Barker was a cover of Mystery Business. And he's like, well, you know, I don't usually put out covers. Like, what if I just drop this cover? I'm really excited about it. And um, and they, they shot it in isolation. Each of them shot their own separate parts, shared the file. Uh, MGK actually edited the files himself and put it up. And, you know, covers aren't necessarily reinventing the wheel for a lot of artists, but Artists of his stature don't necessarily do a lot of covers because they're so busy touring, they're so busy doing promotion, they're so busy working on their album. And we ended up doing a, a, a series of several covers for the lockdown sessions. And we saw something pretty you know, unbelievable happen with his socials and his audience, where he mobilized his audience in a way that they had never been mobilized before. And we went into the, the release of his single campaign with a really engaged audience as if he just came off of a global tour and we were launching a song. So with him, you know, it was just using his audience in different ways. Like, you know, I brought up the James Blake example. He's not the first person to go on Instagram live and perform a song, but in his in his genre and his style of artistic delivery for music, it was rare to see him in that setting. And by him opening himself up to trying something new as an artist, I think he actually just introduced himself to a whole new fan base that had not previously known who he was or uh, maybe wasn't paying attention to him in the moment. So I think with me, it, it, it's been, you know, MGK doing the covers, Youngblood doing the variety show. Uh, we have a newer artist named Ren for short. We did a Netflix party and she invited all of her friends to tune in and watch a movie with her at the same time. And um, she's creating that personal relationship with that fans initially.
0: What about you, Blake, seeing that you're putting on events? You know, what are you kind of seeing as, as other brands are also, you know, throwing events to live stream music?
3: Yeah, I think it's great. I think you're seeing this influx of, you know, well curated lineups. Um, it's a mix of big artists and, and newly discovered artists. I think one of the things that we liked most on Digital Mirage was mixing the heavy hitters and, you know, there's one centralized stage. Um, and just stacking them with the big artists, discovery artists, big artists, discovery artists. Um, So that was great. But just in terms of online festivals in general, they're they're popping up left and right. There's, you know, five to 10 music festivals every single weekend now, um, which is amazing. Some are benefiting, you know, certain charities, others are trying to turn a profit by offering premium content. You're seeing kind of very big array of of festivals, whether virtual or pre-recorded or live or anything in between. And it's it's great to see the music industry be so proactive about charity and providing content and providing just a good distraction for people during
2: this time during the lockdown.
0: Um, During these digital events, fans watching on live streams are able to give their feedback in real time. So how much consideration are you giving to
1: their feedback in the planning process?
3: Um, I think very closely, specifically in terms of, you know, we're already gearing up for the second one. So the feedback that we're getting from the fans is 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 everything. We need to be taking, you know, because we the first festival that we did, we had no idea what we were doing. We were kind of just, you know, spitballing the idea because nobody really did. A three-day online music festival solely for, for a stream before, so um, it was an uphill battle and a learning battle, but it was very rewarding. But again, there's always fine-tuning and and refining. And our team is, you know, our team is a group of twenty, which is which is good. But when you have a an audience of eight mil, then you can really tap into that and say, hey, what do you guys want to see on the next one? What can we do better on this one? we got a, we got an immense amount of feedback and we're taking that all into consideration with planning this next one that we just announced.
0: Kelly, so, what are your thoughts
2: on this? Sure, so, you know, we kind of um,
4: learn from other people's, you know, maybe mishaps and we've seen on, on these bigger streams that if someone has, audio that's not recorded properly it's not like a direct in a lot of these fans tuning into the streams are watching on their home entertainment system with amazing speakers on a, a big you know flat screen tv um so on the upcoming digital mirage all the communication with artist camps we're really excited because people are thinking outside of the box and and really doing insane um production things for the next one the first one was Together on a really quick timeline. And it was really cool to see your favorite DJs DJing from their kitchen. Um, just a real kind of like from the bedroom, but not to reveal too much, but for the next one, we have artists that are shooting it in a pro recording studio with a lighting setup um, going to some really interesting places, not just in the US, around the world. Um, so I, I can't wait for everyone to see the next digital
2: mirage and, and everything that, that people are working on.
0: So this is a question I'd like to pose to all three of you. Does dance music have an advantage in this space compared to other styles of music?
3: I would say yes.
2: Um,
3: I think from a technical standpoint, it definitely makes sense, because you have CDJs. And that's pretty much all the equipment that you really need to perform a set. you know, SoundCloud rappers or any, anyone can just use a mic, which is great, and you can do that beat as well and, you know, have, have, a, have a keyboard set up or have this low-maintenance low equipment set up. But I think, yeah, I think the dance music scene has, has the bandwidth to really, you know, pump these out every single weekend
2: if, if any of these artists wanted to.
5: I think we're all going to have different opinions on that one. <laughs> um, I think for me on the label side, you know, I work... I work with dance artists, I work with R&B artists, rock artists, pop artists. Um, I think that there's some things like tech specs that are a bit easier to create high quality sound uh, like you saw in Digital Mirage. The sound recording that you heard coming through your speakers was really good. Um, I think that when you're when you're thinking about a band doing some sort of live stream, you don't have the same front of house techs, you don't have the same uh, technical requirements that you need to deliver the studio recording. Um, So in that sense, it's probably easier for dance music. But you know, one of the things that's really interesting for some of the artists that I work with that are not dance artists, they're on the rock side or the pop side, is um, by genre, if you look at some of the biggest dance artists or some of the biggest pop artists, you have, um, I feel like a lot of the pop artists have trained their audience to consume digital product across the board, not just music. Uh, but the engagement rates of a lot of the pop artists, the rock artists, or the people that I work with are really high. So I think it's really easy for them to take their audience who's already been trained to consume digital media and flip them to consume a, a live stream, a behind the scenes or whatever. So I think in some senses it's, it's a, it's a bit easier on in different genres, but I think during this uh, this, this COVID time, like, you know, dance music aside you're just seeing people be really creative with the resources and i think that's what's like the most exciting to me is just watching artists do something that i had never seen them do before show themselves in a way that i'd never seen before
1: sure all right joey where do we weigh in on this
4: so on the strengths i agree with like i think the plug-and-play nature um, the ability to do multiple sets a week we have an artist dr fresh who goes on he has a series called house call every wednesday night he's cultivated a nice you know weekly audience around that that's definitely a strength i think a weakness that, that i could see a lot of you know pop rock alternative acts have uh that, that that's stronger than dance um a, a weakness is that a lot you know a lot of these djs are playing other people's catalog so if they were ever going to try to turn their performance into a pay-per-view video on demand situation clearing clearing those sets is next to impossible for a lot of these electronic artists um whereas if if you're a contemporary act that's playing your own catalog maybe you're clearing it with the same record label and it's just something that's possible so you know i think there's a there's a give and take there right it's it's great to build the audience um with the electronic guys being able to do so many of them but we'll see how, how long this lockout lasts, how long this evolves. I,
2: I definitely see a rise in you know pay-per-view concerts as something that's, that's on the forefront.
1: Anyone else wanna
0: weigh back in during all the arguments? Nope,
2: I, all right. Nope, that's all good. <laughs> nope?
0: Okay, well, um, actually, Blake, I did wanna go back to a point that you raised earlier about the you know, what could be seen as a, a strength, uh, you know, for these festivals is that you could essentially have one every weekend. Um, I think what we saw with at least in person festivals a few years ago was that as they got more popular, there were so many that there was just this huge overlap, you know, you could have so many festivals on any given weekend and with it, uh, you know, an overlap. Talent. I, I, I would probably say that maybe festivals even reach the point of oversaturation. So I'm curious to know if you think if we run the risk of that happening in in the digital space and if so, how will we know when we hit that point?
3: Sure. I mean, I think between the first Digital Mirage and what you're seeing now, you know, the barrier to entry again is just so low that. From an organizing standpoint to an artist involvement standpoint, there's there anything is possible. You could we could have we could get to the point where we have hundred festivals a day, thousand festivals a day, all across the world. Um, I think the talent supports it when everyone's home. I think from an organizational standpoint, somebody just needs to take leadership. So I think it's it's really not that hard to just set up OBS, you know, run a live stream, set up a YouTube channel. So it really is very easy compared to running an actual festival, which the logistics of it is a complete one hundred and eighty. Um, I do think online festivals are going to keep growing and growing and growing throughout the entire summer. From the point of saturation, I just think it's it's just like music. There's so many records being released. What gets the attention is it's it's the best it's the best track. It's the songs that are being marketed the best. Um, you know what what sort of branding is behind it, right? Like like Coachella and EDC and all these other festivals, like why are they prevalent and why have they been prevalent for so long? It's because they've established, obviously, the foundation of being around for so long, but also the branding that comes with, what is EDC and what is Coachella? And what, what do you expect when you go to these festivals? We're trying to emulate the same thing with Digital Mirage. You're getting this, this this aesthetic, you're gonna get this lineup. You know, I think, you know, the biggest attribution to our success was us being the first to really do a 3D online music festival. and from an industry standpoint and from even from a fan standpoint, just saying, Hey, like we were one of the first to do it. We're already doing another one. I think we're the first one to do a second round. Um, So I think from saturation, there's for sure, there's going to be an abundance of these. And we're going to have a ton of conflictions and people are going to need to pick and choose between what they want to tune into the same way. All these artists are streaming on their own on, on a daily basis. People just need to kind of pick who they want to
2: see.
1: What do you think
5: Nick? i think I think if if all of the live streams were linear and everyone was doing similar sets, like, yeah, I, I see people I see a market exhaustion with watching live streams, but at the same time, you know Blake brought up a good point with like the amount of music that's being released, like as long as innovation exists, you're gonna see a, a desire to watch it, and you know one of the things that I've noticed with press unfortunately. Uh, because of the lockdown, a lot of major publications had to furlough a lot of their writers. And I actually, um, I get it to an extent, but I actually don't entirely understand it because I feel like this is one of the best times to tell artists' stories, to connect. You have a, more of an appetite for artists to jump on a Zoom and talk about their album or uh, they just, they're just not busy. They're not touring. They're not on a plane somewhere. So I think that you're gonna be able to see a live stream festival. You're you're gonna be able to see an acoustic series with some other publication or some other platform. You're gonna be able to see it in the studio series with another platform. And I think that if artists can Mm -hmm. uh, identify, just like picking up, you know, before this happened, I think if artists can identify like, okay, I'm gonna do this live stream, I'm gonna do this festival, I'm gonna do this concert, I'm gonna geotag this concert for LA, it's gonna be a covers concert or it's gonna be my old catalog. Uh, and then I'm going to do, like, that. you just have to think about how not to exhaust your own audience. But, you know, I think when, when people talk about dance saturation points and, um, you know, consumer fatigue, I actually don't hold the same opinion that many others do. Like, I don't think it was too many festivals. I think it was too many artists doing the same thing. And uh, I think dance music will exist forever. I think, you know, I think jazz will exist forever. R&B will exist forever. But it's going to be the innovators that take it to the next level. And when people started talking about market fatigue, there was a couple variants of dance music that were really starting to to oversaturate themselves. And so I think when you come back to the digital landscape, like programming is going to be key. And if you look at Digital Mirage One to what I expect with Digital Mirage Two, like it was a really healthy blend of a lot of different forms of music. It wasn't the same, you know, the same sound over and over and over again. And I think that 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 differentiation is what's going to pull audiences together to discover new genres of music uh, and to enjoy the ones they love, a la what Coachella does year and year again uh, by showcasing talent in a lot of different genres of music.
1: That
0: actually takes Um, me to,
4: oh, sorry, does someone want to weigh in? Sure, I'll weigh in on that. I think one really interesting thing about Digital Mirage is almost every artist that played was trending on the U.S. in the U.S. on Twitter, and that wasn't just the headliner um, talent. That was, you know, the, the up-and-coming discovery acts. A lot of these guys were trending on the U.S. You know, we manage some artists that are, you know, big festival acts, big festival draws. At some of their biggest festival performances in the U.S., they've never trended on Twitter. Um, so I, I think it's, it's a really unique thing for these up and coming artists where the audiences can be bigger than they are in real life. You know, if you're playing an early slot of the festival, maybe you're playing for a thousand people, you got an early slot on Digital Mirage. You might be playing for 50,000 people and trending on Twitter as a developing act. That's that's
2: invaluable. So I think the digital footprint from these things is just pretty, uh, pretty incredible.
0: Um, so I've been thinking about a point that Nick made earlier, and all three of you are free to weigh in on this, but um, like uh, one or two days ago, uh, the producer again me too, kind of made a point or an observation about how he thought artists would be taking this time to be more experimental with their music and with their performances, and that he hasn't seen a lot of that. So I'm curious if you think artists, if if you think artists should also be taking kind of creative risks at this time, or if there's kind of more comfort in in the
1: familiar?
2: Um,
5: I think it depends on what brand you want to represent. Like consistency is is key for, if you're talking about a lot of like the DSPs uh, and playlisting and algorithmic playlisting, consistency is key. You know, if you're playing to a rock bass or you're playing to a pop bass, you're playing to an R&B bass or a dance bass, you want want to build an army of your own fans that can mobilize your music above and beyond playlisting. And uh, so in one sense, I see some artists doing that, but there's also artists that are being really creative about playing in different genres of music and not being so adherent to creating a linear sound. And so I, I just the main, the biggest thing that I could say during this time is like, you have to remain active. I saw one of the questions in the chat was, do you think it's easier for larger artists to weather the storm or newer artists to weather the storm or major label versus Indies? And I think it comes down to like basic marketing. Like you can't promote a major motion picture by buying one billboard on Melrose and expecting the world to consume it. Like you have to be constantly putting yourself out there and constantly be marketing, you know, the new Avengers movie or whatever. And I think when you think about a macro example, like a major motion picture, and you apply it to an artist, like, you need to be constant. You need to be putting up, not necessarily music constantly, but you need to be putting up content constantly, contextualizing who you are to fans and and, and creating content that they're going to share it with their friends and their friends and their friends. So I think that, you know, when it comes to, Is it about taking risks as an artist right now? Or is it about staying in your lane? It's just about being present. Like that's the biggest thing. If touring gets kicked back till next April, if touring gets kicked back to next summer, or if touring gets kicked back to 2022, how are you as an established artist continuing to keep that that audience engaged and creating new audiences, by the way? You know, one of the things that I haven't seen talked about too much is the macroeconomics of buying power. If you mean ten thousand tickets uh, as an artist, and you can sell ten thousand tickets to a room, you may come out of COVID with the ability to sell to ten thousand ticket holders. But ten thousand ticket holders won't have the disposable income to buy tickets. People are losing their jobs; they're getting furloughed. So uh, one of the things that I've been pressing upon my artists right now is like, how do we build—not not only maintain, but how do we build audience in this off time, so that when we come back to market on a touring level? we're either doing the same size rooms that we were targeting before this happened or bigger. Uh, and I think that that's something that people really need to focus in on is how do I remain consistent or how do I remain constant? That was a long answer. Sorry.
1: (laughs) Have something to say.
3: Start me. I think Joey might be good to answer.
4: Yeah. Could you, um, Remind me of
1: the question, Crystal.
0: Yes. So it was actually, uh, this question was actually kind of inspired by a tweet by Diemitsu, who talked about how he thought that musicians would be taking this time to be more creative with their music and performances. But in fact, he hasn't seen much, much of that in the live online performance space. So do you think? Artists should be taking that time to experiment creatively, or is there comfort in the familiar of what they already do?
4: I mean, I think the the quality of music that's going to come out of this on the other side is going to be amazing. We will probably have so many great albums and and great collaborations. Um, on our side, we have clients doing sessions over Zoom, which is like a new thing. Uh, writing songs over Zoom, collaborating over Zoom, and I think a lot of, you know, a lot of artists, the self-contained guys, you have an artist who represents Sebastian Paul. He writes, produces, records all his own music two feet the same way. These guys go into a studio. They don't need to work with anyone to, to make their, their content. Um, those guys might end up getting out ahead. You know, the people who don't have to get in a room with anyone, at least until
2: quarantine's lifted. lifted. So.
0: Um. I want to actually, I want to get returned back to another point that uh, Nick made, Um, you know, over the last few months, we've seen virtual festivals produced by major event and music brands. And we've also seen major artists uh, create viral moments on streaming platforms. Uh, Can newer, smaller and independent promoters
1: and artists still make an impact in the digital space?
2: Can you repeat the last part of that question?
0: Can a newer, smaller, and independent promoters and artists still make an impact in the digital space?
3: Yeah, I think it, go- it just goes exactly back to the point that Nick made about <clears throat> if you have a good product um, and you have a good marketing plan, there's no reason why the music can't carry the extra weight the you know, rest of the way. I think in terms of an online programming standpoint, pretty much... From a foundation aspect all these vessels are curating a mix of big artists and discovering artists so you know as, as joey said we had a bunch of our discovery artists have 50 60 people um, for their hour-long set and then have a huge shift in in twitter followers and instagram followers by the thousands um and just going off a slight tangent there i think the, the uniqueness and discovery aspect of being at your computer watching an online set versus being at an online music festival is that you have access to your Twitter, you have access to your Instagram. So you can follow these artists in real time after they're playing a song that you like, or if they do something particular that you like, um, you can follow them immediately. And I think that's testament as to why almost every artist trended on Twitter during Digital Mirage was because when you have fifty to 80,000 people watching one artist and tweeting about them and you know posting about them on Reddit, um, then that's that's why they're able to trend because everybody's talking about this one artist. There's one stage. There's no confliction. Um, so the hype is really there, and all the attention is there for that artist, whether they're a discovery artist or or big. Or but again, I think it, it does benefit, and you know, the small artists should be proactive, and they have the, the same opportunities as everyone else does. You know, streaming world is is a completely level playing field. Anybody can go on Twitch. Anybody can go on YouTube, and start an account and start posting material. I think now it's just the fact that everyone has to stay home and they have to come up with something. That's that's where, you know,
2: that's where you have to be innovative, like like Nick said.
5: You've also, as a wow. developing artist, removed a couple of barriers to entry right now. You know, a lot of the market attention was on artists that were touring and going to festivals. And right now you have captive audiences at home consuming more media than they ever have in their entire lives and maybe ever will. So, you know, I, I have another group that I, that I managed named Bunt um, who we had a plan before COVID we're releasing music. They're not touring yet. We're still developing. And we use this time, not necessarily to fight for market attention, but to plan out our entire year and create music. And, uh, and I think for a lot of artists out there that, you know, maybe watch this later or, you know, might be aspiring artists like now is the time for you to really be able to fight for attention in ways that you previously couldn't and i think it comes to like planning you're also dealing with when you're normally as a generalization when you're a developing artist or when you're an unsigned artist or an indie artist or an indie label or an indie promoter you don't have as many tools to utilize as some of the majors or some of the larger artists but larger artists don't have festival footage that they can cut together for a lifestyle video right now. They don't have some of this content. They're not living, you know, all of them aren't living with their videographers. They don't have as many resources as they did three months ago. So when you're thinking about an artist, you kind of level the playing field for a lot of independent artists to showcase creativity. And, you know, you could, you could be the next person to break with a viral moment off of TikTok or have a song that goes viral on one of the streaming platforms. Like, it's it's kind of cool in that sense because i think that during this time i think i think the festivals they get booked right after covid are going to look a lot differently than we expected prior to it um
1: that actually brings me to my next
0: question since we don't really know what the world is going to look like you know six months a year from now as as artists and promoters plan for the future, do you think online-only events will or should be part of their strategy once we're able to safely return to live venues?
3: I think yes. Because even beyond just an events standpoint, I think it's one of one of the best ancillary marketing pieces. We've had artists premiere and debut tracks on Digital Mirage um, as part of their marketing plan for the release of a record. Um, I think I think it goes back to the point of you know being innovative and doing something different. I think a, a big weight factor for any label or artist to be a part of Digital Mirage is the exposure of a record. You're seeing it's you know you know labels are scrambling to come up with unique marketing ideas for how to service a record, um, and they're following the traditional model. It's like let's do a TikTok campaign, you know let's uh, let's hire a, a Spotify playlist editor right right to playlist our song. Let's Get this YouTube channel to post it, right? There's a very traditional model that's safe, um, and I think when something new comes to market that you can really use and take advantage to mar- uh, to to either market your artist or or a release of an album or even a single. Um, I think artists are still going to want to be involved. I think managers and labels are going to you know advocate that these should still exist and want to want to want to be a part of it still. Um, and again, it's it's. It's a unique way to showcase an artist um, from a branding side. You know, they're not typically in a in a venue or at a festival, so they can play off of you know filming at unique locations and showing you know a different side of them, whether it's sonically or uh, or visually. It's 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 a way for them to really um, shine uh, just beyond their Thursday through Sunday touring dates, because you know they're touring they're touring Thursday through through Sunday, and then they have a few days off every week. It's just a great way to kind of spend your time and, and push the needle forward and, and produce more content. And, um, we'll handle the rest, you know, that's, that's kind of it. And, you know,
4: to build off Blake's point, live streaming music festivals isn't isn't a new concept, right? Like Ultra Music Festival has been doing this for years. Um, and they had one of the biggest online festival live streams in the game. It really, like, I think did did wonders for growing their brand globally um, because so many people in other countries could, could tune into the ultra stream and Insomniac is really on the forefront of, of this as well and has been streaming EDC for some time. Um, I could see moving forward that this kind of becomes part of the marketing plan, right? Like maybe Coachella or Lollapalooza are starting to do warm up live streams with certain acts playing um, leading up It is like a, a part of the marketing plan. It just they've been so successful online, they're drawing such big audiences. Like why
2: wouldn't you want to kind of have, have a few artists from the festival do a stream um, to promote your event?
5: Yeah, I mean to piggyback on that too, like one of the I think that we're going to a time that just accelerated market behavior, consumer behavior. Like I I'm 34. <laughs> I don't do a lot of face chats unless it's friends and family and all of a sudden i'm on video conferences with everyone i talk to and that's normal i'm okay with it now i've become familiar with it you also had um these live streams that joey just talked about they've existed but the consumption of them you know has been good but now i think you're about to see spikes in the consumption of them because consumer behavior was headed this way you also have a whole nether level of augmented reality and virtual reality where those there's been a lot of companies trying to create an experience that people really want to consume, and I'm of the belief that we just weren't there yet, whether it was technology or consumer behavior there wasn't a large scale appetite for it. I think that's drastically changed the fact that I don't see an ad every day for a virtual concert blows my mind because I feel like this is the time to capitalize on the new behavior of consumers. I, I completely agree with Joey, that this will probably be part of the norm for marketing concerts moving forward. And I've already seen a larger increase of, of a live concerts being showcased, whether you're flying on Delta and the Delta suite is showing you a, a C3 concert from Lollapalooza or, um, it's one of the ultra music recaps. I just think that this is going to be something moving forward that becomes part of your touring rhythm. It becomes part of your, your, your fan base. To, to what Blake was saying earlier in this thread, like we have a captive audience in some of these festivals that's much larger than some of the biggest festivals that you could possibly play. And the whole reason that a lot of artists want those big slots, one, for notoriety and, and you know, billing, but two, it's for exposing their music to large audiences when you have an artist that's playing in front of 50 to 80,000 people on Digital Mirage Festival, you essentially just play a main stage at one of the largest festivals in the world um, in terms of introducing music. So I, I think this is gonna be something that needs to be capitalized on the future in different ways from live streams to virtual reality, to augmented reality, like this is going to be a norm.
0: Awesome. Well, that concludes the panel Q&A of our segment. Um, What do you say we jump into the chat and answer some questions? All right. Let's see. Um, Question from Chappelle. What has been your favorite online performance since
1: lockdown?
2: Um, I really like do you guys see that cascade set
4: recently? Was it at the Grand Canyon observation deck? It's pretty cool. Um, I, I love the I love the shows where people are going into nature. Toki Masa's digital mirage set, where she filmed it from Joshua Tree. Griffin and Malibu for his digital mirage set. Um, I just think they're so unique, and and some
2: you know things that wouldn't have happened if if all this didn't go down.
3: yeah I think uh I think Andrea Bocelli's stream that he did um in Milan was pretty damn cool um you know it was it was a full on something you'd expect from him right and he just provided that for free um I think that was very innovative from someone of that caliber to do something that big with very little lead time right he didn't he wasn't planning this for weeks he kind of announced it a few days before and then he ended up getting I, millions. I, I don't even know what it was. I think it was 2 to 3 million concurrent viewers. Um, and it was a beautiful performance. Um, I think that was probably my most impressed stream to this date.
5: For me, it was Post Malone Nirvana. I thought that was awesome. Um, I think it's really cool. I also think you're giving somebody a reason to tune in when you're doing covers because people uh, are... Like, that, that's a one of a kind of thing. It's like when Kanye did the, uh, um, the 808s and Heartbreaks uh, show at the Hollywood Bowl, like, that was a different reason to go see a specific concert. When Post Malone did Nirvana, no matter if you've seen him live or not, like, that was a moment in time that will be protected for a long time because he did it for
2: this one, you know, one reason.
0: Blake and Joey, do you want to talk a little bit about um, you know, putting on Digital Mirage uh, and, and raising money for tweet release musicians?
3: Yeah, I think uh, I think you know the reason why the donation model came up in general was because the conception of what Digital Mirage was was all based off of you know a tweet from Proximity and a tweet from Brownies and Lemonade, where we were seeing all these artists struggling with canceling tours and, you know, their rehearsals and how much equipment they bought, you know, for, for the summer and them not being able to do anything with it other than letting the equipment depreciate for however long. Um, so the idea was always to see who isn't, who was who is interested from an involvement standpoint. Um, and then how could we actually help them and benefit them? So the charity model came in sweet relief already established themselves as a, as a as an organization that has the pedigree and, and the history of really allocating funds responsibly for people in the music industry, um, you know, from from workers, from stage managers to tour managers to musicians, whether whether or not they're, they they financially can't make ends meet for physical reasons or or any reason, so we really liked them. Um, and yeah, the, the the goal was to provide a free online festival and raise as much money as possible for you know, the musicians playing our festival and anybody else who, who actually needs them, we we're fortunate enough to raise $300,000. Yeah. And,
4: you know, it's no secret that a lot of these electronic artists that play the festival, I mean, the majority of their revenue, the majority of their income is, is coming from touring and live shows. And what was great about Sweet Relief is we had a number of artists. I'm not going to name, you know, Specific acts, but there were a number of artists who played the festival who applied for funding from Sweet Relief and were were granted funding. I heard a number of stories of people. Um, Sweet Relief is really cool. They they don't send uh, the beneficiary cash directly, but they'll pay your rent for you or they'll pay a medical bill for you. Um, so that that was just really really awesome. That that artists who were you
2: know contributing and being part of this were were direct beneficiaries.
0: Um this next question comes from Jason Kramer and looks like it's open to the panel. Is it time for storytelling with artists uh and to build legacy rather than a quick single?
2: I'll let Nick the mastermind speak on that. Yeah.
5: Thank you. <laughs> First off, Jason's the legend. Uh, um he uh I, I think it's always time for that. Like honestly, like I think it's always time for that. It's just so hyper-focused right now because that's all you can do. Um, You know, the the single, I don't, I'm hoping no artist is intentionally just trying to put up one viral single and not showcase them creatively. I just think that sometimes it happens that way. You know, a a good example in the dance scene that I've seen, um, they're friends of all of ours on the call, but like the smokers, you know, we're putting out incredible indie dance remixes of uh, hype machine artists before selfie hit and they were so talented as just content creators and producers and you know selfie became their viral moment and i've seen a lot of artists over the years have that viral moment and not they don't they don't figure out how to translate the storytelling side of it they, they don't know how to showcase their brand in the right way uh, and the chain smokers you know turn that moment as a moment of exposure and then Began telling their story over the course of the next several years to this new audience that didn't previously understand who they were. So I think that like, I think that all artists need to be linearly focused on building a long-term brand uh, and, and a, a solid foundational story for who you are, because that'll be the that'll be the motive for you to be touring either live or virtually for the next, you know, 20 to 50 years of your career, if you can establish that foundation. There's so many artists that have insane touring capabilities and massive fan bases that don't have quote unquote hit singles because they built their story right. And when the hit single comes, they just onboard mass audiences to the story that's already been built. Yeah. And, and from a management perspective on that, um, you know, a
4: lot of developing artists we work with and what I tell people who ask me for, for industry advice, like, should I put out my, an EP? Should I put out an album? Should I put out a single? I always tell them, put out a project, put out an EP or an album when you have the audience to consume that. So when you, you know, have that fan base that's hungry, that'll sit there and listen to 45 minutes, but it's hard to get people's attention on the internet for 142 characters, you know, one tweet, two minutes of a song, let alone, I think, you know, some for some artists releasing a project early works, but uh, for a lot of people, I think they might be better served going kind of single by single, building their audience, trying to capture attention on on two three minutes of content, and then once you have the fan base, then then going into the project. I don't think it's necessarily. Uh, I don't see that
2: part as being you know affected by COVID.
0: And to build off that last question, this one comes from Lenis Uh if the current situation continues until next summer, what do you think will happen to the big artists out there? Will they continue to evolve into
1: digital performances or will they just stay put?
5: Um, I think I think that they'll I think they'll evolve. I mean I also think that Unfortunately, some of the big artists that happened before COVID won't evolve and they won't be the big artists that they were before COVID. Um, I think that you really have to understand how to mobilize your audience right now. Aside from the current status and pandemic, like we're entering a a stage where there's so much uh, insight to who an artist is. And if you're not capitalizing on that, if you're not controlling your own audience, someone else is going to, someone else is going to grab that attention. So I think that, um, I, I, I would fear any artist that thinks that they can just stay put unless you're maybe a legacy artist that's already created a release for them where you come out, you know, a la Adele or somebody like that, where you can come out, you know, cyclically every three to four years. Like, yeah, you probably have the luxury of time on your hands. But I think for a lot of the current contemporary pop artists that you know, you see on the big, you know, mainstream radio shows or whatever, like you you have to be mobilizing your fan base right now. It doesn't mean that you have to drop tons of music. Like, I, I, I only think that you should do that if you have the capability of making tons of great music. It more so is a way to showcase the different side of yourself. And that earlier example of James Blake that I brought up, like, I, candidly, like, with as big of a James Blake fan as I was, I was more a fan of the mystique of James Blake and a couple songs. Seeing those live streams made me realize a little bit of his personality that I as a fan had never seen before. And it started getting me to dive more into his back catalog and be excited for what's to come. So I think that's a perfect example of like, you need to start showcasing who you are during this time so that when you come out on the other side, you have either a whole new fam- you know, foundation that you didn't previously have, or you've maintained the audience that you already had and they're still along with you for the ride.
0: I think that's a great answer to end on um, before we go, uh, by the way, great questions and answers, everyone. I have one uh, final question for our panelists in one word or phrase. What do you miss most about live events? And we'll start with you, Blake. Um,
3: it's the connection. It's about, you know, it's it's nice to experience stuff on Zoom with your friends or go hang out, whatever it is. But I think being in that setting live with your friends and just enjoying it at that moment, um, you know, on the grounds, I think is, there's no feeling that comes close to that being surrounded by the actual, being surrounded by tens of thousands of people who are enjoying that moment as, as much as you are. And, you know, walking around and, you know, eating food and drinking and all these things that come with being at a, at a festival for 10 hours before you go home and your legs are giving out. It's, that's what I miss for sure.
1: What about you, Joey?
2: Um, I, I miss seeing live music in person. There's,
4: you know, when someone has stage presence, uh, there's no substitute for it. And as cool as all these virtual streams are, you know, you're, um, like Live Nation's been doing all these polls where, you know, fans are telling them that, these live stream events are making them even more excited to attend a show in the future. And the refund rates when people are rescheduling tours are like 10% or below, right? People, they're okay. Letting the, the promoters and artists hold on to the money because they just want to look forward to the show in the future. So um, yeah, I, I miss, you know, Coachella, La Alpalooza, Red Rocks, all that stuff. I can't wait to get back for it. There's, there's, uh, there's definitely a magic in live music and,
2: You know, as great as these online events are, it's no substitute for the real thing.
1: Fair. What about you, Nick?
5: I miss the variables. Like, I miss the unexpected. You know, what you were saying with the live streams, like, I'll, I'll discover a new artist, or I'll discover a new song, and I'll think they're creatively brilliant, but it doesn't take away from a friend grabbing my hand at Coachella and being like, yo, I want you to come check out this new artist, Jane, and let's go walk over there. You know, on Zoom, I don't have anybody pulling me away from what is constant behind me. And, uh, and you know, I remember Las Coachella you know, going over to uh, Jane's tent and watching an artist that I didn't really know a lot about captivate the entire tent where everyone was jumping up and down the entire time. I was enamored by her, which is a song called Makiba that I think is amazing. Um, but that happened because a friend that I wasn't expecting to see bumped into me at Coachella and brought me to one of their favorite artists, and I, and I discovered through that. You can still have that digitally, but there's so many other variables that happen at live events that I miss.
0: That's, yeah, so are all really great answers, and I really hope that you all get to experience those again soon. Um, Nick, Blake, Joey, thank you so much for your time and your insight. Uh, in these unprecedented times, it's really, To see industry figures such as yourselves come together and find innovative ways to preserve the sphere of live music and community, Um, you know, things that we sorely need in this at the moment. Um, To our audience, thank you at home for watching and stay tuned for the next two hours of Cloud Bar, brought to you by SoundCloud and on Twitch.